Alright guys, you are locked on Falcons. I'm your host Aaron Freeman and today I am answering your listener questions dealing with the Atlanta Falcons. You are locked on Falcons, your daily Atlanta Falcons podcast, part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. So guys, you know me, I'm Aaron Freeman, been covering the Falcons for many years at FalcFans.com, on Twitter of course at FalcFans. The host of this world-renowned podcast, and this is a world-renowned podcast that you can get on the brand new podcasting app Himalaya, as well as Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and when you get in your car, tell your smart device to play podcast Locked On Falcons. So today we're going to be answering some of your listener questions. I appreciate you all for submitting them. I will try my best to answer as many as possible. On today's episode, for those of you that don't know where and when you can submit your questions, you can submit them anytime. Uh, but typically, you know, you can do so on Twitter at Locked On Falcons, Facebook Locked On Falcons, email just as Locked On Falcons at mail.com, as well as you leave it in comment at falcons.com. So today we're just going to be answering Twitter questions today. Got a pretty hefty bag full of questions. So any sort of other questions that you submitted elsewhere, we'll just have to sort of save for future endeavors. So I apologize in advance for that. But uh, the first Twitter question comes from the dude at dude order on Twitter. He asks, who killed JFK? Just kidding. Will Matt Ryan have returned to MVP level? Well, to answer your second question, I think if you're asking me whether Matt Ryan's going to win another MVP, I don't expect that, but it's certainly possible. I, I think the odds are actually more favorable that he will win a second MVP than the odds were that he would ever win the first MVP at this point. But, you know, there aren't that many multi, you know, two-time MVP winners, so I'm not expecting it. But if you're asking sort of by saying MVP level, you mean like having 110 passer rating, having an adjusted net yards per attempt of 8.5, which is typically what we expect out of MVP caliber seasons in today's NFL, and whether or not Matt Ryan can play like that for stretches of games or for entire seasons. Yeah, I think that's possible. We saw him play at that level from week two to week nine last season. So I think that will should and, and will continue uh, in the future. I hope it does. I think it's not going to be terribly difficult to get that out of Matt Ryan because we know he's capable of doing it. You just got to continue to surround him with quality talent at the skill positions and on the offensive line and, and hope the play calling is there. When the play calling is there, Matt Ryan plays really well. When the play calling isn't there, Matt Ryan's just pretty good. Like, you know, so that's really where I think it's at. Um, as for your first question, I didn't read this book. I haven't done a ton of research on this, but I do find the idea that is sort of presented in the book, The Mortal Error, I think it's called, uh, very compelling when it regards to the JFK assassination as the one where one of the bullets that shot Kennedy, the one that hit him in the head was actually accidentally fired from a secret service member riding in the car behind him. And apparently Oswald's shots startled him. I've heard one people's someone say that the Secret Service was out late drinking in Dallas at night and so the guys were hungover or something like that. I've heard that theory. Again, I am not a conspiracy theorist. I haven't done a, a ton of research, but it's at least compelling to me, at least based off of what I know of the JFK assassination. Um, it seems more plausible to me that that happened, an accidental Secret Service, like, you know, I don't know if it shot if the Secret Service shot the bullet that was the fatal bullet to Kennedy, because from what I've heard and and seen that you know one of Oswald's shots would have been fatal uh, if if uh, even if that third bullet hadn't hit him. 
but you know, it seems more possible that there was an accidental shooting as opposed to Lee Harvey Oswald, Lee Harvey Oswald having like the greatest shooting day ever, in my humble opinion. But uh, that's my two cents on a conspiracy theory. Uh, Nick Williams at Boy Wonder Thirty Two asks, assuming that we only keep three running backs on the active roster, with Free and Ito being locks to make the team right now, who do you see being the third running back on the roster? Um, if you're specifically talking about the active roster, meaning the forty-six man roster versus the fifty-three man roster, I'm pretty confident that Quadri Olson will be the third running back because of that special teams ability. Um, but I do think, in terms of uh, the 53-man roster, I do think there's a chance that Brian Hill can still make it as a fourth running back, depending on how things go this um, training camp. You know, it's interesting to me. I think the Falcons haven't necessarily given Brian Hill the fair shake. And it's one of the things that's always interesting to me, and, and, and maybe this is a conspiracy theory that I do believe in, but it's always interesting to me to sort of see which players that the Falcons, quote-unquote, clear the runway for and really just sort of like, oh, like, there's no way that you can't win this job and various other players that they seem to sort of present many obstacles that I think sort of stunt those players development and growth. And I think Brian Hill is in that latter category. I think you can make an argument that Sherrod Neesman's in that latter category among other players. And it's always interesting to see sort of that dynamic with sometimes the Falcons are just like, Oh, we're going to cut a guy. Why? Oh, because we want to bring in a new guy and we know that new guy isn't going to beat this other guy out, so we're just going to cut this other guy. And that's really it. That's always weird to me. But, uh, you know, we'll come back and answer a couple more questions on today's episode. But I want to let you guys know that today's show is brought to you by Grip6. Their belts are ultra lightweight, no holes, no flap, and great for Father's Day, which is coming up. Uh, Grip6 has a special offer for you at grip6.com slash lock. I certainly uh, back Grip6. They're very doable, stylish, long-lasting, very good value for you guys. Again, you can check them out at Grip6.com slash lock. That's Grip, the number 6.com slash L-O-C-K-E. So our next question comes from Justin Sandu at Justin201224 on Twitter. How do you feel about a potential 18-game season and two-game preseason and the chances it actually happens in the next CBA. I'm not particularly optimistic that it will happen in the next CBA negotiations, which are coming up in, what, 2020 and 2021, I think? 2021, I think it is. Because um, I feel like 18-game schedule with, is so much more on top of the normal negotiations that go on during the CBA. Like, the last time the CBA took place back in 2011, the, it was negotiated. It took them, like, what, from March to July to get that done, so four months. And... You know, I feel like the 18-game schedule is going to take probably four months in itself for them to figure that out. And so to throw that on top of the normal CBA negotiations and all the other things that they negotiate, I just feel like it doesn't seem likely. That's just going to throw a wrench into that CBA negotiation. So I don't feel like it's going to be something that comes out of that. Again, this is purely speculating. I have no idea about this. I'm by no means an expert on this. I'm just literally making this up. Uh you know, you would have to ask these questions to people that are actually involved in labor things. But, you know, this is a very uneducated opinion here. Um, but I do think it would make more sense for them to sort of structure a way for them to move to an 18 game series. Like, okay, during the next CBA negotiations, they decide, hey, let's get a committee together. And over the course of three years, we can talk back and forth about how we would potentially do an 18 game schedule with like an option to do it in 20, start doing it in 2025. And if they could agree to do that, 
to sort of punt and revisit an 18-game schedule down the road after the CBA is established and leave something in the negotiation that would allow potential expansion to an 18-game schedule, I think that seems more likely to come in this next round of negotiations than actual just uh, an abrupt switch to an 18-game schedule. I just think what they would have to do in order to make the 18-game schedule, and to answer your question, how I feel about it, I'm not necessarily a fan of it, but at the same time, I do find it a little bit intriguing, if for no other reasons than the fact that it would be you know, a novelty at this point, and, and anything to sort of be interesting and different for the NFL at this point, I think, is is generally a positive for them. Um, but I feel like in order to properly pull that off, you'd have to ex- completely change how they do things. You'd have to have a second bye week. You'd probably have to expand the rosters. Then you'd have to probably increase the salary cap and thus increase the amount of revenue that the players are sharing with the owners. Uh, you would have to restructure training camp and preseason to allow for more scrimmages because you're not going to necessarily just be ready to go after two preseason games. Um, you know, it would be so many logistics that you would have to go through that it just doesn't seem likely that that's going to be something that can get done in a CBA negotiation. But over the course of several years of both the players and the NFL talking about it and saying, okay, like let's meet for two weeks and hash out ideas and nothing is, we'll commit to nothing after until, you know, we've done that for a couple of years and, and figure something out. That to me seems like more, makes more sense to me. But then again, who knows if the NFL is willing and the NFLPA is willing to do that. Next question comes from uh, JB74 at JoeBear74. Uh, when are we getting new unis? I'm sick of these ones. It seems to me, and again, I'm not an expert on this, that the general trend is when there's some major change to a team, they tend to get new uniforms, new quarterback, new coach, new GM, new owner, or something like that. Since I don't think the Falcons are going to get a new quarterback anytime soon in the next five to seven years, I think you're more likely to see that happen with a new coach or new GM, which, you know, could happen in a very short while. I think now that they have, you know, the new stadium, I think it makes some sort of marketing sense to be like, okay, this is a brand new era. We've got a new stadium down. Let's get new uniforms. So I could definitely see, you know, I feel relatively confident and optimistic in, in saying that I think, you know, if Matt Ryan plays another five to seven years, that the last couple of, of those will be with a different uniform on than the current one he has. But you know, whether that happens in two, three, four, you know, or five years, I don't know. Davon Wilson at DWizzy 1997 asks, what are the odds we sign an actual free agent that will get significant minutes or impact the team? Example, McCoy missed opportunity. If so, what are the important positions to improve upon? I think the odds are pretty good. I mean, the Falcons generally do sign guys in the summer, whether that's in June or July or August, that do wind up playing for them, you know, Dwight Franey, Taylor Gabriel, Andy Levitri, Jordan Richards, they do wind up adding players like that all the time. So I think if they do add somebody, then it's likely that that guy's going to play. They're not just, you know, they do bring in some camp bodies at this point. But generally speaking, if they're going to sign, you know, an actual veteran free agent, that's going to be a guy at this point that they're not bringing in just to compete. That's a guy that they expect to win. And you see that kind of with Alan Bailey, who they just brought in on uh, Wednesday for a visit, the free agent from Kansas City. Many people are talking about him playing the strong side defensive end spot. I I feel like the Falcons are more likely to play him as a three-tech at D-tackle in their base defense. I think that's where Allen Bailey's better utilized than, a, than as a five-tech. Um, but I think looking at the current roster, I think, you know, we talked about this on a previous episode. I think the edge position, and I'm not referring to defensive end. I'm specifically referring to edge because I think with the Stephen Means injury, like to me, once the Falcons draft John Kaminsky, 
they were penciling him in, or if not pinning him in, as the five technique in the base defense. Like that to me is the only real role that John Kaminsky can play this year. Otherwise, they're just going to be forced to redshirt him. Um, so then that meant Stephen Means was likely going to play the Leo, which makes more sense to how he was used in Philadelphia than how he was used in Atlanta, even though he played really well in that strong side defensive end spot in Atlanta last season, at the end of last season. But once he went down, you don't have a Leo. Basically, you, you haven't replaced Brooks Reed yet. And so my suspicion is the Falcons, at some point between now and the start of the regular season, will try to acquire said player. The, part of the reason why I'm not necessarily as panicky as others may be or seem to be when it comes to the Falcons sort of missing some of these opportunities with a Gerald McCoy, potentially with an Allen, Baby, Allen Bailey or anybody else at this point in time, is you can make at least the argument that the pickings are slimmer in June than they're going to be in August. Because once guys are on the roster bubble, once guys hit the waiver wire, once guys get on the trading block come August, you know, no one's going to trade guys in June, really. There, there aren't that many trades that have pulled off in June. Teams are going to wait till August before they start moving players again. And so you'll be potentially at least having a larger pool of players to choose from come August if you wait to address some of these holes rather than trying to address them now where the slimmest of pickings and basically free agents are basically either young players that really can't play or old guys that are sort of over the hill and on the decline and just basically looking for like one last hurrah with somebody, which you can argue Alan, Alan Bailey is at this point. Um, and, and many of the other players that the Falcons could find, sign, sign at that edge position as well. So, um, you know, I think, you know, be patient is basically the point I'm trying to make. Our next question comes from Mantis Toboggan MD at Slick to Mitch 212. Even though we have a hard schedule, majority of our games this year are played inside on turf. Will that make a difference on some of these games' outcomes? I don't know. I mean, there's evidence. That, you know, I've seen stats that say Matt Ryan is better outdoors on the road than he is indoors on the road. And that makes sense because of the factor of crowd noise and, you know, um, silent counts and, you know, pass rushers being able to get a better jump because of the crowd noise. So, you know, I don't think it really benefits the offense to play all that, you know, all that much, at least the statistics suggest. Uh, It doesn't really benefit the offense uh, to play you know, indoors on the road, um, and then playing indoors on the road on defense, I don't think really benefits the defense all that much because then the opposing quarterback's going to have favorable conditions to be the best possible uh, passer and most efficient passer he can be. So I honestly think playing indoors isn't going to help the Falcons all that much in their schedule, at least in terms of the matchups. I mean, maybe it's like 5% easier, but not a significant amount. Um, you know, basically, you know, the bottom line is under Dan Quinn, the Falcons are 16 and two, 16 and 12, I'm sorry, 16 and 12 in road games outdoors. They're three and three in road games indoors. Again, not a significant difference in win percentage, like 57 to 50%, but, um, it doesn't necessarily seem like, you know, the venue outdoors indoors really is going to be favorable to the Falcons in any significant way. So there's my thoughts on that. So we'll come back and continue to answer more questions, but I want to let you guys know that you can get this show or your second favorite Lockdown Podcast Network show on the new Himalaya Podcast app. Himalaya is free, super easy to use, has every single Lockdown Podcast you could possibly ask for or any other podcast you could possibly ask for. One of my favorite features on Himalaya is creating custom shareable playlists of podcast episodes for long road trips 
and those long, slow work commutes. Download Himalaya at your app store right now and subscribe to Locked On Falcons. Uh, Mantis Toboggan MD Slick the Mitch 212's next question is one more question slash statement. I believe transitioning to more of a 3-4 will benefit us, but reports have said Vic Beasley hates playing linebacker. What's your take on that? I believe our defense will be roughly nickel 70% of the time, 3-4 20% of the time, and 10% the rest. Uh, if I'm tweaking that number that you just throw out, and again, this is me just pulling it out of my butt, um, I'd say it's like 55% nickel, 10% dime, 10% 3-4, 20% the rest. Um, you know, I, I feel like the 3-4 stuff might be a little bit overblown with the talk that the Falcons may be moving in that direction. I think really if the Falcons are going to move in that direction, um, it's really going to be incorporating more bare fronts to their defense. That's really the only thing that in my eyes is really a significant change to what the Falcons currently do because the 4-3 under that Dan Quinn runs is basically the only difference between that and what a lot of 3-4 teams in today's NFL run is basically it's the difference between whether the Leo in, the, in last year's case, was Brooks Reed, whether his hand is in the dirt or whether he stands up. If he stands up, it's basically the same as a 3-4. So I think the idea that the Falcons are going to be more of a 3-4 team versus what they were before doesn't make a ton of sense because basically the difference between a 3-4 and what they run 4-3, it's a very thin line. And so, therefore, it's not really changing anything. You're just basically saying, oh, you, you're better rushing the quarterback standing up than you know, with your hand in the dirt. So that makes us a three, four now like that. I don't, I don't really buy that. I, I think it goes back more to the bare front that I'm talking about. And for those of you that don't know, the bare front is basically uh, where you see the three defensive linemen in the quote unquote three, four. Um, they line up over the guard center and guard. And typically that's two, three techniques over the guard. Uh, and then a zero technique nose tackle over the center. And then you have the two outside guys, which in this case probably for the Falcons will be strong side linebacker Devondre Campbell and whoever is the Leo, potentially Tack in this case. Um, you know, I think that's really sort of maybe what you will see more of. The Falcons have dabbled with the bare fronts in the past. You know, in previous times, Tack has been more of an inside guy than necessarily an outside guy. So maybe that's the change that the Falcons are doing. And the reason why you would run more bare fronts, the bare front is particularly good against, you know, the run. But again, I don't necessarily know if that's going to be a major part of your defense of play calling uh, because it's kind of susceptible to the pass and, and you know teams can attack it in, in various other ways. So I think it will be part of what the Falcons do, but I don't necessarily know if it's going to be the main thing that the Falcons do, particularly on uh, defense in their base packages. Um, as for Vic Beasley not wanting to play linebacker, I mean, that seems very plausible to me. I mean, basically said as much after the 2017 season. Um, you know, and, you know, I think that's probably a contributing factor to why the Falcons were so committed in, you know, moving him back to defensive end because that's what he wanted to do. And, and, you know, they had reasons that I, as regular listeners of this podcast, uh, know, I don't necessarily agree with, but they had semi compelling reasons for why they wanted to do that. If if that's the case with Vic Beasley, then, you know, so be it. That's a shame in my opinion, because I think he'd be so much better as, as a linebacker that splits time between, you know, dropping coverage and rushing the quarterback, where it's not all just only about rushing the quarterback. And instead of, you know, dropping into coverage two to three times a game, which is sort of what he does now, you know, being a guy that can drop into coverage, you know, five to 10 times a game, still rush the quarterback quite a bit, but still utilize that versatility and that athleticism in space 
where I think that's really where he's best utilized. I think he's a natural as a linebacker. He just needs to be coached up. But if he's sort of rejecting that sort of coaching or would sort of reject that sort of coaching, then, you know, again, that's a shame. So we'll see what his market is like. You know, I think if he's basically going to refuse to be a quote-unquote linebacker and basically say, I only want to play for four three teams that are going to ask me to put my hand in the dirt and, and mix it up, you know, I think that could be sort of limiting his market to a certain extent. And I don't necessarily know how many four three teams based off of his play the last couple of years are going to be jumping at the chance to pay him the type of money that I'm sure he he's going to want to get paid on in free agency next year to do that. So we'll have to see. But then again, as I said earlier, the, the difference between the three, four and a four, three isn't significant, but if he's basically going to balk at, you know, dropping in the coverage X number of times a game, then that's going to be a problem in my opinion for his potential, um, ability to impact moving forward uh our next question comes from third and long uh he asks looking at the possible running back group do you think they complement each other or is their running style missing um you know when you say running style i'm assuming you mean like power versus a speed guy and a quick guy i think really the nfl is about sort of what type of offense you run what type of concepts you run so it's really about the type of plays you run. Do you run outside zone? Do you run inside zone? Do you run man blocking? Do you run power? Do you run all these various things? And, and every team runs a little bit of everything. Um, and do you have guys that can run those different running concepts that you have and different blocking schemes that you have? And yeah, I think the Falcons have guys that can do you know those things. Uh, e- at least one guy that can do each of those things. Um, I think Devontae Freeman can do all four of those things. Um, you know, which makes him good. And I think Edo Smith has the potential to do all four of those things as well. I don't know if, if Hill and Olison have quite the versatility to do all four of those things quite yet, uh, but maybe we can get them there. You know, I, I, I talked about this a little bit on my Olison scouting report yesterday. I think the way the NFL is going, it's all about sort of what your identity is, what type of offense you run. And that's really where the running back position is being sort of specialized. I think the idea of sort of, you know, the the quote-unquote antiquated idea of sort of having a power guy and a speed guy, you know, the thunder and lightning combination is an old-school mentality. I don't think the league is going in that direction. I think they're moving away from that direction. I think they're moving in the direction of having guys that can do all of everything, all, you know, well-rounded running backs. So that means that opens up your offense to be a lot more uh, flexible. Um, and, it, you know, I, I mentioned you know, the idea is to basically be able to run 75 plays out of your playbook out of five formations. Um, and having running backs that can do everything makes that possible. If you have a guy that basically is a power guy that, but isn't a factor in the passing game, you can't really do that. If you have a, a, a quote-unquote third down back, a Chris Thompson, but you're not going to necessarily hand him the ball off, you know, and, and run him on inside zone and, and power run plays, then you can't really do that. So it's one of those things where... You know, and now obviously that being said, there aren't that many sort of all around guys. There aren't that many David Johnsons. There aren't that many Devontae Freemans or Ty Girls or whoever else you want to put in that category that can do everything. Um, and so it forces teams to sort of have to find guys that can do, you know, be the master of one thing rather than the jack of all trades. Um, and so, you know, you don't have 96 all around great running backs uh, so that you can build your offense. So it does, you know, the lack of. Uh, talent, or not necessarily lack of talent, but the lack of sort of that elite talent sort of means that teams are forced to have to get guys that have differing styles and complement each other. But I don't think that's necessarily really the goal of an NFL offense in terms of their team building. 
If you if you don't have a Todd Gurley, if you don't have a Zeke Elliott, if you don't have a Devontae Freeman, then you kind of have to go in that direction. But if you have one of those guys, then trying to get complementary options, I, I don't think makes a ton of sense in my eyes. Um, unless the, the complementary options is getting guys that can do what Devontae Freeman does, but faster, you know, and be more explosive doing it. Like that's where you compliment those guys in my eyes. Um, Jay busy at J busy nine Oh nine, four, five Oh five, nine. Um, looking early at the, looking early to the 2020 draft, what edge prospects are you looking at to possibly be Vic Beasley's replacement and what receivers to possibly replace Sanu? I haven't done my scouting summer scouting yet. I'm probably going to do it in a couple of weeks once I'm, you know, once I'm done with the scouting reports and we talk about the undrafted free agents and any other things I'm working on. So probably mid to late June, if not um, early July is when I'll start that. So I don't really have a bunch of names that I can name right now because I just haven't dug into the tape and I've done the research on who I'm looking for. But for me right now, probably my focus for the summer scouting. And last year I did this for defensive ends, offensive linemen, and guards, tackles, uh, defensive ends and D tackles. Um, and, you know, I think I did a pretty good job of figuring out sort of where the Falcons were likely going to be headed in this 2019 draft, uh, even before the season started. And so the four positions I'm going to probably focus on for next year's draft is wide receiver center, defensive end, and off ball linebacker. Cause I just feel like between Sanu, um, Vic Beasley and, De- uh, Devondre Campbell, I'm not expecting those three guys back. And I'm, questioning whether or not Alex Mack's going to keep playing um, at, beyond the season. So those are the four positions I'm going to be focused on for next year. Again, the list of names, very small at this point. Chase Young for the defensive end at Ohio State. He's being projected by many people at this point to be a top 10 pick. I'm sure at some point in the next 12 months or 10 months, we're going to hear people saying, oh, he's even better prospect than Nick Bosa, which he may wind up being. Uh, he, he certainly looked like a guy that had – top in first round potential when I watched him last year in passing. Um, you know, the wide receiver position is supposedly one of the deepest we've seen in years. I've only seen a, a couple of the guys at the, at the top of the class. I'm not going to necessarily be focused as much on the top of the class as I will with some of the, maybe the, the, the guys that figure to be more day two guys. Cause I think that's more likely if the Falcons do draft a wide receiver, it'll be more of a day two early day three guy rather than a, another first round pick. But uh, I certainly will, you know, watch the Jerry Judys and the Colin Johnsons of the world uh, when I get the opportunity. But another guy that sort of stands out to me when I've watched uh, Washington play these last couple of months is uh, Aaron Fuller. And he sort of looks like a a solid slot receiver uh, at the next level um, in sort of that Sterling Shepard sort of mold uh, of the rare slot receiver that I actually like uh, as far as their projection in the NFL. So uh, he's one name. But uh, we'll have to see. And, I, you know, I would always recommend checking out Locked On NFL Draft Podcast with Ben Solak and Trevor Sikama. Uh, they're going through their own sort of summer scouting projection things. They're going through the positions. There. I think they're on the running back position. Um, but they'll be moving through those positions. So definitely you want to subscribe to the Locked On NFL Draft Podcast on the Himalaya Podcast app. And again, I want to thank you guys for listening and subscribe to this show as well on the Himalaya Podcast app, as well as Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify when you get in your car. Tell your smart device to play podcasts, Locked On Falcons. So um, Monday, we will be back with a uh, the uh, Jordan Miller scouting report, and then we'll probably wrap up Tuesday with the uh, Marcus Green scouting report. And 
you know, if the Falcons do wind up signing Alan Bailey over the weekend, that will probably bump those for another day um, to Tuesday and Wednesday shows. And we'll talk about Alan Bailey on Monday. And so if anything happens on Monday, but we're, you know, we're coming up on the mandatory mini camp for the Falcons. So we'll have some topics to discuss later next week as well. So uh, look forward to that. guys. You are locked on Falcons, your daily podcast on the Atlanta Falcons, part of the locked on podcast network, your team every day.